what I really learned in that was when you're focusing on what you can do to help, the misery itself doesn't become the focus. What becomes the focus is the way that you can alleviate it. And that allows you to survive it and not be so traumatized by it. You can't go back and do it again because you say, well, I made that piece of things better. I did that much to help. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. So Beth, thank you, thank you, thank you for being willing to participate in Insert Human. As you know, it's a relatively new adventure of mine, and I've just, I've just loved the opportunity to, to dig into the, what I view as the topics that matter in today's world with people I care about. And, and for the audience, uh, you should know I care very much about Beth Babcock, both as a person but also as a professional. She uh, she arguably is probably one of the most grounded, seasoned, and and pedigreed nonprofit leaders I know. Masters from Harvard, a PhD from Harvard, but I think as importantly, years of of in the trenches practical experience, learning what really works in terms of helping people achieve economic mobility. And she today she runs an organization called Empath, and the EM part of that stands for Economic Mobility. I have, I have a, little, a little bit of involvement, involvement with that. And I just, Beth, I, again, thank you for doing this. And, and I just love to start our conversation with you sharing with the audience and me too, what is Empath's work all about? And in the work that you're doing, what, what have you learned about mobility and helping people get from where they are to, to a better place? Well... It's great to be with you. I love spending time with you. Likewise. And Economic Mobility Pathways, MPATH, is an economic mobility action tank. And What what does does that mean? Yeah, exactly. It means we research stuff the way a think tank does, and we think about solutions to problems the way a think tank does. But after we're done with the research, instead of sharing all our great ideas with everybody, We actually design out of those great ideas and build new ways of working that we test and evaluate and look at what the outcomes are. And if they work well, then we share them with others. So we are an action tank in in a think tank that does stuff. Right, right. And, and, And in doing stuff, not only do you have impact, but you corroborate, confirm, validate or not the theory that you, that you are the hypothesis that you exactly. began with. So it is, it is sort of like a teaching hospital, if you will, you know, right. where you do stuff with people, you try new ways of doing stuff with people. As you try those new ways of doing stuff, the things that work, you carry forward and you teach about and you share. And so we are now an organization that is based in Boston and does direct services ourselves in Boston. But we now have a network of 145 nonprofit organizations and government entities around 
the United States and in four other countries that are taking the stuff that we've developed and they're deploying it as well. And we're able to learn from them and evaluate based on the outcomes that they're achieving. And we work together as the big network to try to improve pathways out of poverty. And the, the main thing we do is we develop ways of coaching low-income participants to achieve greater e- economic mobility. So we build coaching tools and platforms that are now being used in hospitals and in the city of New York in their children's services and in universities and also in job training and other kinds of economic mobility programs all across the US. And mm-hmm. what we, we know is that the world of getting out of poverty is drastically different now than it was even 10 years ago. What it is, the way you get out of poverty is, has changed so radically that it's, it's really almost indescribable. I don't mean to be crass, but hard, I assume harder. harder. I mean, is, is that even the right, can you even apply that? And it's always hard, right? But harder. It has been, it has been, it has never been easy to get right. out of poverty, but we have this confluence of changes that have made it so that to get a job that supports a family, you now have to have education beyond high school. A generation ago, that was not the case. You could get a union-based job that would support a family and you could take care of a family. You now, in order to get out of poverty, have to have a two-earner family. Um, A single person cannot usually support a family anymore. And our whole economy is based on two earner families. But as you know, we don't have public childcare. <laughs> so problem number two, right? And what percentage of families, lower income families are in fact two, two people, two partner, you know, have the potential of two earner earnings? Yeah, I don't, I don't have that statistic. I don't know the exact number, but I know that 80% of children who are born into poverty now are born into single parent families. Okay. So, so you're talking you about can, poverty being generally a, you know, a right. single parent kind of structure. Right. And, um, and, but there are a lot of working poor families who have two earners who aren't even really able to support their families either because about 45% of American households now are at the poverty level, uh, at the self-sufficiency level or just below. In other words, they're living paycheck to paycheck. Or less. <laughs> I have to ask this question because I think, you know, I, I would guess 50% of my of the audience for Insert Human is, is Boston area located. Are these statistics reflective of the Boston quote unquote market? It's even harder in Boston. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. It, the oh, statistics God. are even worse in urban areas than in Boston because Boston is a higher cost city than many other cities. And so when you think about the minimum wage being basically the same across the United States, the cities that are more expensive are going to have the gap between what a low wage earner can pay for and what the actual costs are that's, you know, that's greater than in other parts of the country. So in Boston, for example, in order for a family to pay its basic costs, if you have a couple of kids, it's gonna take about $70,000 a year to pay for the basics of a low cost apartment, the costs of childcare. Those are the two biggest ticket items for, 
for families, but also then for food and for healthcare costs and other basic costs. So about $70,000. And in other, other parts of the U.S., you know, you can get that number down and it may be uh, down into the 50000 right. range. Right. But, you know, you're still talking about if you have uh, two earners who are making minimum wage, they're not coming anywhere close to that. Nowhere. So, yeah. So that's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is that we have had a real change in the value of the minimum wage and also in the social supports in the country. You know, when I, when I was coming up, if you were a single mom, you could get housing and welfare supports for, you know, until you, your kids could, you could get to the point that your kids were school age and you could get on and start earning something. In the United States today, it's only two years that you can get that kind of support. Housing wow. support goes longer, but but welfare supports are two years. So, you know, we've had a big, big changes and it's made it very, very, very hard. And the biggest change, the very biggest change is the nature of work itself, you know, yeah. and, the, and yeah. what's happened in work and the way that the, the world of work has been divided into jobs that are knowledge-based jobs and jobs that are not, and the big divide in wages that comes with those. Beth, for the audience, Beth just recently published a, a very compelling piece. I, I, I forget where it's, where it's, it's probably on your website, but where can the audience find, find the article that you wrote? You can find it on our website at empathways.org. Yep. Okay. Okay. But one of the one of the little anecdotes. I mean, there are many anecdotes and many supporting data data points in the article. I, I highly, highly recommend that everybody read it. But one of the anecdotes that stuck out of for me was was Beth's reference of a. I think it happened at the end of 2019. An autonomous driving truck went from I don't know the West Coast to somewhere in the middle of the country. You know, no driver involved, and the and the and it made it safe and sound delivering a truckload of i think butter or something i can't remember but but the point of this of that anecdote is that you know that's there i don't know 2.5 million truck drivers in the united states that many probably had a high school education but nothing more that those jobs probably won't exist 15 years from now yep and what do those people do there are economists today are basically suggesting that 42% or so of the jobs that are in that were in existence pre-COVID, meaning the categories and types of jobs that were in existence pre-COVID, are uh, not even going to be there by the time we're done with this pandemic. That they're, that right? they're not going to exist. If you look at the past 35 years in this country, 88% of the jobs that have been lost, you know, like permanently lost in the country. 88% of those jobs that were lost occurred within the six months before and six months after the three recessions that we've had um, oh, wow. over the past 35 years. And we're in a, we're in a recession now. Yeah, right. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing that there are, there are jobs that are going away that we're learning how to live without. We're learning how to automate. We're learning how to do differently that will, will not, not be coming back. And these were trends that were happening anyway. Automation and the digital world were changing and eliminating jobs, but it accelerates. And under the cover of these kinds of big cataclysms, it's, it, the changes happen faster. Okay, so this is depressing. <laughs> what? Yes. Why is that woman who works in anti-poverty smiling at you right now? <laughs> right. Can we talk about the how empath is responding? Like you, you mentioned, you started by saying it's gotten harder. You know, getting working your way out of poverty has gotten harder. 
So what 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 can we do? What are you? What is your organization doing? Well, you know, one of the great things is about the way the world's been changing is it's allowed us to learn things that we didn't know before about how human beings tick. So I'll start with that. Yeah, um, great. We've had an explosion of research in many fields, whether it's behavioral economics or it's medicine or human development or neuroscience, all of these areas of, of research have come together to paint a very clear and convergent picture about how poverty, discrimination, stress, the stresses of poverty, discrimination, and trauma affect the way human beings develop and they think and they behave. And one of the things that, that has come out of that is that stress, the stresses of these things, of, of being poor or of being discriminated against both, the stresses impact us in ways that are we can build new ways of working out of. So I'll give you an example. One thing we know is that people who are under stress have a tendency to really only be able to think about the problem, the biggest problem in their lives, like that bill they can't pay or the kid, it's current asthma situation that they have to take care of, or, and they have a tendency to only be able to think of, we all human beings have a tendency to only be able to think of one thing at a time. It's what scientists call tunneling. It's a protective mechanism. You know, when you have a tiger who's ready to pounce at you, you don't want to be thinking about whether or not you switched your laundry. You know, right. we're, we're designed to clear the decks and only think about one thing. Right. And that's a very good defensive mechanism when we're under stress, when it's that kind of threat. But when we are trying to get out of poverty, it is a constant everyday trade-off and decision-making to help us work through the day in the best way possible. So I'll give you an example of what happens. With our participants that we serve, you'll have, and this is very common, a mother who's been trying to complete a community college course who is taking a bus to her last exam that would get her the credit or maybe even the degree from that course, who will get a call from her school nurse to say that her kid is having an asthma attack and that she's got to come get the kid. And what happens is this normal human reaction we call swamping, where you get overwhelmed, you throw your arms up in the air and you say, okay, I've obviously got to go take care of my kid. I can't think about the exam now. And it, it, you just, you know, go ahead and throw up your arms and you give up on this longer term, bigger thing that you've been trying to accomplish. And what that means then is you don't, your head doesn't do what a head that's not under stress normally does which is to say, okay, my kid, I have these two competing needs. What's my plan B for how to deal with the kid? I really do want to get this exam taken. I really need this degree. It's very important for my family. I want to, I want to do this. So what's my plan B for my kid? And normally when you're not under stress, you'd be thinking of things like to the school nurse, well, can you manage my kid there? Can you wait for me to call my friend? I'm going to try to call a friend to come to school to get him. Can I talk to him? Is he able to hang in there? Have you given him his nebulizer? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, you go to these other kinds of things that you try to do first before throwing up. But the normal brain under stress doesn't, isn't capable of doing that. And so this makes a big difference when you have 100 decisions being made a day 
when a kid is tugging at you and saying, I want new sneakers and you have the money for the rent that has to be paid. And you, you know, you have this immediate thing where you need food or you need to pay something that's pressing right in front of you, but you also have the rent that's due later on and the rent gets pushed off and the rent doesn't get paid and then it compounds, right? right, right. So these are all normal things. Can I, can I just say one, 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 one comment is, is, as you were describing it, I, I was thinking about my own circumstance and, you know, relating to both tunneling and swamping, you know, but then I also had the thought, I'm lucky enough to not have the, the economic facet of, of that. And I've got to believe that the economic facet, the ability, like the worry of, of being evicted or the worry of putting food on the table exactly has an exponential impact on the level of swamping and right like it does not all causes are the same have the same weight i would i would assume exactly it causes there to be almost a constant state for people who are in a group that's discriminated against or in a or low or, or in trapped in poverty this constant sense of being in a fog of not being able to plan of not being able to work, figure out how to work a way out of where you are, of not being able to figure out which way you should go. And this is something that causes people to, to make decisions that are different than the decisions that they would make if they didn't have all those pressures sitting on them all the time. And so we know these things now. So you're asking me, why am I optimistic given how the world has gotten harder? I'm optimistic because that's just one piece of the science that we know now about, about how stress and the stresses of poverty impact people. And what we know is we know ways to design programs and services to counteract all of that to design programs differently. We know that in programs, instead of giving, making people fill out 50,000 forms, that if you can simplify the processes of the forms, if you can send prompts and reminders, if you can create coaching programs where people practice finding the plan B and going to the plan B, even when they're overwhelmed, and that happens and is practiced over and over again. So when the stresses really hit, you can do that. You can make that plan B come up. You can start to sort it out. It, it causes us to design coaching programs and work differently. So we've done massive overhauls in how we work with participants. And believe it or not, it sounds like, oh, what kind of difference it could make. The kind of difference this change in the way you work with participants makes is the difference in a person coming into a program with an income, a family income of $16,000 a year earned income. You know, that's that $8 an hour kind of worker to being at $48,000, $50,000 a year in a job where over 75% of them have gotten a new community college degree or new credential where they have $3,500 of their own money saved in the bank. Wow. And they're in a job that at that, at that $50,000 level, when they've been in it five years, has a career path that's going to get them to that $70,000 as a single earner that the two-person household would have to have to be able to support a family. And that's something that our programs and our partners' programs routinely do now. We do it like cranking out cookies. It's not unusual. We've been doing it since 2009 because of changing the ways that we work with low-income participants. So this science is new. 
And the other thing that's new, and it gives you, it gives you mojo, it gives you right, things, right, right, tools right, 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 that you didn't right. have before. But the other thing that's new is that we are now able, because of big data, I can look at the data of 40,000 families who are getting these kinds of interventions across the United States and in other countries. And we can start to say, well, if we coach in person, does it matter versus coaching virtually? If we start out with a big jump start of a group in a program, it, does it, do they catch on faster than if we work with them just one-on-one? If they have peer support from each other, does that work better? And, and if you have the right pictures on the wall, does that change things? And if you have offices that have less distractions, does that change things? And we're able to look at our own work and, and evolve it in the way that for-profit businesses do all the time in right. trying to create efficiencies and improve production, productivity in their own work. We can do that in the nonprofit world now because of the capacities that we have for research and evaluation and our use, uses of data. Brilliant. And, and, and is, this, is this what you mentioned the 140 other agencies and governments that are are, yeah. are, are sort of uh, part of the network. And ha- I think many of them have come to you having heard about the success of, of your program. All of them. We have, yeah, that's how they've all come up. And when you, when you shared that, I, I thought to myself, oh, it's like open source. Yeah, it is. Right, the way open open source software works, you know, Red Hat is, is a you know Linux is a is a famous example. Is that the way it works? And and absolutely. And, and what are you you're export, exporting the frameworks, the, the the data? Like, what are you actually making available to the partner organization? For organizations, we we basically in within a membership, and it's very inexpensive to join as a member organization. All you have to have is an interest in creating economic mobility with low-income families and want to be implementing new ways of working in your own context. So organizations can join for as low as as $500. By the way, a lot of the stuff that we do is also just publicly out there in publications and stuff, so you don't have to join at all. But in our membership of of the organizations called the Exchange, the Economic Mobility Exchange, the organizations join. And then what happens is we give them assessment tools and goal setting tools and training for staff on how to overcome some of these brain-based challenges. We give them online classes. We give them technical assistance. And they, so they have all this stuff. And it's done in an open source way. They get it. And if they want to riff on it, adapt it, to their particular context, we encourage it the same way you would an open source platform where their adaptations, their apps become part of the knowledge base of the network. Yeah, do they get put back into the system? Yeah, so if you are working with a tribal population and you find that you have better better graphics that are culturally based graphics that explain some of the tools that we use are graphically uh, used to share with participants and you can, you can do it in a way that's more culturally appropriate, you're going to share that. So we have a tool that we call the Bridge to Self-Sufficiency, which is a, a picture of how people move ahead typically to get out of poverty 
and it's it has five pillars that are are the core areas where people have to improve their lives family stability their own well-being their money management their education and career all those things have to sort of be kicking along for people to move out of poverty and if they have big deficits in any one of them then they're going to have problems getting ahead you can have a college degree but if you have problems with mental health for yourself or your family you know it's very hard to have a family sustaining job so anyway, with the network, we had a tribal population that was using our approach as this bridge graphic, and they said, oh, that doesn't really connect with our participants, and they designed a canoe where each one of the pillars of the bridge became a paddle on a canoe. Every paddle has to be going at the same speed. It has to have good, strong ability to catch in to push the life ahead. And it was a marvelous adaptation that we now have. You know, we can share tools that have been translated into multiple languages that can be shared. We had partners that developed ways to depict the bridge for people who don't have any written language. So just looking at it from for people who are illiterate, quite frankly. It's amazing when you put stuff out there in an open source way, what other organizations can do to build apps and adaptations to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we measure it all together to see who's kind of getting the, the best outcomes and where and how we can help each other get, get more outcomes. Are you seeing, it, it, it sparks for me, you know, years ago, I think you know this, I did a lot of, a fair amount of work in the nonprofit space. And one of my, one of my frustrations, if you will, was a, a lack of scaling that, that, you know, you have all these really well-intended smart, do good organizations, but they're not collaborating, they're not sharing. And so the, there's no economy, call it economies of scale in, in, in achieving greater impact. So this is what you're doing. I mean, you're effectively creating exactly. a multiplier, right? So that, you know, what you're doing gets out to the world. I, my question is, are, do you see this model and, and, you know, it's, it's not in your space, so maybe you're not aware, but like, are, are you seeing this happen in other areas of, of call it social need where, or is this, are you, are, is this model like an anomaly, you know? I think it's still pretty anomalous, Yeah, but I am seeing it. I'm seeing a lot of organizations in the human services, education, healthcare spaces are really trying to develop networks to do shared work on the same problems. So to build partnerships okay. Okay. to solve problems together. And I think the challenge that's often out there for other organizations or systems that are trying to do this is in order to make something stronger, you have to have a common platform to evolve from. You know, you have to have a place to start that's your common language or your common way of thinking and measuring and working that you can then riff on and improve. Right. And oftentimes what happens is these organizations are coming together to try to figure out, well, what is the problem? How do we define the problem? And then right. to sort of figure out a shared approach to the problem. And that is extremely hard to do with a whole bunch of different organizations. <laughs> whole bunch of people, like many cooks in the kitchen, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's much easier to take something that already exists and say, oh, that sucks. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and say, we know that that's bad because we are smart and we saw something you didn't see, right? It's much easier to react to something than it is. To well, yeah, yeah. And I think this goes back to the 
action tank construct, which is it's it's a scientific orientation, you know, thinking, hypothesizing, developing, validating, proving, you know, and 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 to me, I mean, I, I you know, for the audience, I've been involved in bits and bits and pieces with Empath for a few years, as long as Beth's been there, and and it just struck me as this sort of optimal combination of scientific orientation you know, focus on measurement, analysis, big data, you mentioned, you know, but loaded with empathy and caring mightily about the people that you're trying to help. You know, it's like, it's this perfect combo platter. And it allows, as you said, the platform, getting to the platform allows scalability, which which you don't see in other in other places. Right. I'd love just, because I'm, I'm, I'm we have so much else to talk about. I might have to have you come back soon for another round. <laughs> I'd love just again for the audience a little a little bit more grounding in terms of the direct services work that you're doing in the Boston area, like what, what exactly that entails. Just because I, yeah. frankly, audience, I think you should support Empath. I mean, I know there's lots of organizations you should support, but the work they're doing is is measurably impacting people's lives. And so, just tell us like two minutes on on you know exactly what what's going on direct services wise. Well, to get back to sort of the hospital analogy, you know, we have beds. We actually are the largest provider of housing for homeless families in greater Boston. We will serve maybe 800 or so households that uh, that are homeless or have just come out of homelessness and are placed in, in public housing or other supported housing. And so we work with those families who are currently homeless or just out of homelessness coaching them on how to not be homeless again, (laughs) how to up their earnings and improve their education and stabilize their families. We will, we'll work with 1500 or so individuals in the greater Boston area, both in those shelters or housing apartments. We also provide coaching for the entire Whittier street neighborhood redevelopment that the Boston housing authority is doing. So that's 200 families there that are, are being relocated and out of their Whittier Street public housing and then being relocated back again into um, new affordable housing that's being built. And we'll coach them for the five years that they're working, you know, to have their neighborhood rebuilt. And wow. we work with, we have freestanding drop-in sites that are supported by the city of Boston where people who are low income who want to get this kind of coaching uh, on how to improve their education and their jobs and their um, family stability and their health and money management, we, you know, they can drop into a center uh, we, the, in offices that are located right above the Children's Museum in, okay. in Boston. So, yeah, so we do it's, a lot of this we coach and we, we like to coach families for multiple years because it takes a few years to actually go from that sixteen to that $50,000. So ideally we'll work with, with families for multiple years, but yeah, but do that work ourselves as do our partner organizations. Another thing that you and I have talked about and I've thought a lot about is just the, the efficacy of coaching generally, regardless of situation. I mean, one of my funny expressions is, is the funny, the ironic thing about self-help is you can't do it yourself, <laughs> right? It's called self-help, but, but actually it doesn't, I mean, my own, my own story definitely proved out the importance of mentors and guides and coaches and advisors like you know, people need people to work their way through the dark, the dark stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anybody who's ever gotten anywhere in this world 
has gotten there because of a couple of things. First thing is you'll inevitably hear somebody say, I did it because my teacher or my parents yeah. or somebody believed in me. You got to have somebody who sees in you that nugget of possibility that right. you aren't necessarily seeing in yourself to do something different right. than you might otherwise have done. If you're going to stop working at McDonald's and you're going to become a CAD CAM designer, engineer, you got to have somebody who say, you know, I see you as a CAD CAM designer, yeah. or I see you as a person who could go to college. So that's the first thing is that expectations and the high the high power of expectations of others on how, what we do ourselves. Yeah. And then the second thing is to go from one place to a place you've never been before, or you have to have somebody who can tell you how to get there. It, it's somewhere along the get line, you, you, somebody's got to tell you what a sonographer is in a hospital. Somebody has to tell you that it only takes a couple of years to be trained, but you can make you know, $60,000 a year. A word sonographer isn't going to be something that most people are, who, are, who are trapped at the bottom are going to be hearing from right. the neighborhoods and networks, right. churches and other things that are their normal places of, of being. And yeah. so you have to have somebody who has a little bit of that intel who can not only say, I, I see you as somebody who can do marvelous things, but also, and this is the direction, or these are multiple directions you might pick from. What do you think about them and help people sort of sort it through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. And, uh, you know, you talked about the, the challenge of economic mobility, right? You know, getting out of poverty has become so much greater. Um, and my view is COVID has just, has not, it's not really changed anything. It's just put a spotlight. Well, I didn't say it's put a spotlight on a lot of, a lot of the divisions and in, in, inequities in our society. Yes. My question for you about COVID is, is really first as a person, like what's the experience revealed to you, shown you, taught you, how, you know, how have you managed through it? It's, it's a question that I've asked most of the people who have been on the show. Because I think it's it's just a it's a it's obviously a unique point in our lives, right? Like none of us have been through anything quite like this, and so how, how do you how how have you sort of processed it, and 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 what's your what's your take on it? The good, the bad, the dark, the light, the you know. I just love to hear your thoughts. Well, I guess the biggest thing that it's it's really pointed out to me is that the divisions that you were talking about, it's really shown a light on them and it's exacerbated them. There's just no question. When I talk about stresses of poverty and, and discrimination and trauma, those stresses have been put on steroids because of all that's gone on in the environment, you know, that we don't have to go into that's made for job losses and people seeing things on television that make them crazy and hurt and, and, uh, you know, it's just and the fears of the healthcare issues and the limitations that that's placed on where people can go for help and how they get help. It's just, uh, you know, it's just really made things worse. So on the one hand, it's become this most terrible of worlds that, you know, you could ever imagine trying to do this kind of work in. But on the other hand, it, is, it has taken this whole structure that we had as an innovation organization, where we were built, our bone structure was built to innovate every day. 
It's like we were designed to make it better every day, to reinvent it and to look at it and strengthen it every day. So we built all this, this bone structure as an organization, as a network to solve problems and to make things stronger. And so all of a sudden, in the middle of this pandemic, we had good ideas coming from everywhere in the network and network members meeting with each other to say, well, how are you handling you know, virtual coaching? And how are you handling staff stress and trauma? And how are you, you, know, how are you dealing with all these problems? And we could bring it together and get it out to people faster and better than we ever had been before, all because we had built online training platforms and we built all this stuff to learn from each other that we ended up being able to use in this terrible, terrible time to help us get through it in a better way. So uh, that's been the crazy, crazy positive of it is realizing, oh my God, we built something amazing that we could use to, again, once again, to alleviate the terrible, terrible world problems that our staff and participants deal with all the time. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that in other organizations where, this is a terrible expression, but it's sort of separated, you know, it's it's revealed vulnerabilities in some and then strengths in others, right? Adversity has a a tendency to do that. How, How has it changed your perspective as a leader? Like, has it, or actions as a leader. I mean, did it did it put more pressure on different? Yeah, I've been spending more time consciously trying to be a metronome in a completely asynchronous world. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that metaphor. What I mean by that is I've been trying to give as much sort of predictability to staff and to staff and structures that were predictable and dependable for staff as I could in a world where everything was going crazy every day. So trying to communicate to staff how we're going to deal with people who are working from home and how long and what the, what, how we're going to help provide structures to support that, trying to give for people who are working front lines with participants in shelters, help around how we can structure the work to keep them safe and to keep the work as as safe and predictable as possible so we don't have lots of infections. One of the things I'm proudest of is that, you know, we have one location where we house 58 homeless families together in one place, and they had shared meals up until the pandemic broke out. And we've not had one COVID infection in that site, not one. That's amazing. Particularly you compare that to other, call it, you know, living group living facilities. So I've been trying to do as much as I, it's been a lot of work around communications and around things to try to keep environments predictable and stable and, and comforting so that people can feel as though at least work is a place they understand why and how it works. They understand what to expect when the world is going crazy all around them right. and, and trying to do quite, quite frankly, a lot more comforting of people, a lot more sort of hugging of people virtually. Speaking of hugging, there was this great article in the times a couple, three months ago about COVID. It was, it was just, it was a collection of little vignettes of 30 families in, I think all in New York city and how COVID had impacted their lives. And they, none of them were like dire stories. They were more like lifestyle impact stories, but charming, mostly positive, but some not so positive. But the one that stuck with me was a, a 20 year old kid, young man saying, 
he said, quote, my, my 10 year old brother and I have hugged more and cried more in the last two months than we did in the prior 10 years. Yeah. And I, I just love that, you know, that, that out of the darkness comes maybe for some, certainly not for all a level of intimacy that connection, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm less worried about appearing soupy, you know, modeling. I'm less worried about that than I was before. And I just point blank, tell people I love them, you know, more people I work with. I tell them I love them. I, I, I'm before I might've felt, Oh, is that, is that CEO like to say that? Or will they think I'm being weird? I, I, you know, I just tell them I love them and it's made that kind of stuff come to the surface in ways that maybe, you know, that wouldn't have before. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's, it's, you know, if you can express affection physically, you know, hugging not allowed. I mean, I've certainly seen this with my kids over the last four or five months because we're a big hugging family. And obviously we haven't hugged since, I think last time we were all together and hugging was like February. So in lieu of that, I think I I do tell them I love them more. And I also developed this like, not bizarre, but this funny little habit of sending them things. Yeah. (laughs) Like just like weird, like sometimes I would buy them something, a little something on Amazon or sometimes I would like, you know, I don't know, something I had around the house that I didn't want more that I thought one of them might like. So I'd mail it to them. And and I think, I guess my point there is I think we we have this capacity to, to show affection. And when you take one modality away, you make up for it with other modalities. It's like when you lose a sense, the, the other four senses, you know. Yeah, like smiling beyond the mask. Yeah, exactly. Finding other ways to smile beyond the mask. Yeah. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. So my wife, Kate, for the audience don't know, don't know that, we were talking earlier today about we're buying a car, a, a little a little VW <laughs> to have capacity to get away. We don't own a car today. And she said something to the effect of, yeah, she just heard of, about a, somebody she knew that was was going to buy a transistor radio for fear that Armageddon strikes and, uh, you know, the World Wide Web collapses and this is how we're all going to stay connected. And I guess my question for you is, how are you as a human, not as the CEO that you are, but as a human processing, you know, the current complexities, which there are many, and thinking about the future and and no right or wrong answer this, obviously, just just a, a, a question of, you know, just how, how are you, how you're thinking about, you know, the, the, the years to come. And Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that I am a big practitioner of gratitude. You know, I just, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for the work that I get to do and the people I get to do it with and the people that we serve and what they give, give us. And I'm deeply grateful for my family. And so that is, um, is a really important, piece of comfort for me because when you dwell on those things it you know obviously it really makes you feel a hell of a lot better but i guess the other thing is i'm doing a lot of the serenity prayer lately (laughs) oh good for you yeah 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 sure you know grant me the serenity to accept the things i can't change the strength to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference and i want to fight battles i'm the big hard worker. I, you know, I'm a dig dig in and try to fix it kind of person, but I want to be sure I'm focusing my energies on the things that are, I I really can change. 
And so for me, a lot of surviving in the world right now is to sort of think about, okay, how, how, which of these problems is actionable? Which one can I actually do something about? And to try to focus my attentions on, on that and, and to take joy then, you know, out of that work and, and appreciate the opportunity to, to do it. I, I learned that very young. You know, I was a, a paramedic when I was a teenager. I, I don't know if I knew that. And, you know, used to have, yeah, I kind of started out that way. And I used to have to go to these horrible car accidents and peel people off of the pavements and, you know, and have to handle those things. And people would say, how can a kid like you, you know, do that kind of work? And, you know, with what I really learned in that was when you're focusing on what you can do to help, the misery itself doesn't become the focus. What becomes the focus is the way that you can alleviate it. And that allows you to survive it and not be so traumatized by it, you can't go back and do it again. Because you say, well, I made that piece of things better. I did that much to help. And so, yeah, so that's how I'm surviving now. I mean, it's funny. As you described that, I was thinking about your your explanation of of mobility mentoring and the frameworks you use and, you know, the challenge or challenges, how you help people deal with things like swamping. And there's some similarities, right? That, uh, Without a doubt. <laughs> you're absolutely right. It is. It's like getting the head to be able to practice how you can make decisions that are, are going to have long-term impact in a moment of crisis. Right. The other word you used was fog. You know, people, people in poverty feeling at times, maybe all the time, that they're in a fog. I think a large percentage of, of the, the entire world, I think, feels today that as if they're in a bit of a fog. Yeah. And, and how, do we, how do we navigate through, through a, you know, a, dense, a dense fog? Yeah, I think that's a good connection of the dots that you've made there. I really do. Yeah, thanks, thanks. So let me, I, so I, I'm mindful of time. We've got like one minute left. Tell me about your favorite book. You mentioned in our email exchange that you're reading a book that you love. Oh, I read it years ago. It's still my favorite book, though. It's Douglas Hofstadter's I Am a Strange Loop. He is an amazing polymath who wrote Go to Lesher Bach and then wrote a book called I Am a Strange Loop after that. And what it basically says is that aliveness, the degree to which we are sentient, the degree to which we are alive is a function of how much we loop. And looping is how much we take in and, and you know, think about and then react to the world, the world and the people around us. And the more we loop, the more that comes in that we, you know, the, and then kick it back out and take it other stuff back in, the more sentient we are, the more we metacognate, but the more alive we are. So human beings I love that. are not all alive to the same degree. Human beings vary in, in how much looping they do. I love that. And you are a big time looper. I like spending time with you. you loop a <laughs> well, lot. it's funny. I, you know, and I'm sure I've shared this with you. I, I, that so describes me. And, and, you know, sometimes people will say to me as a compliment, you know, oh, my gosh, you're so smart. And I know I'm not smart. I'm, I, I saw my SAT scores. I, I, I'm, I don't think I'm a dummy, but I'm not smart. But I'm definitely a looper. You are a big time looper. I'm trying with my limited IQ to figure stuff out. And to your point about taking stuff in, you know, my advice to, to everybody is you've got to consume. 
like, you know, in order to understand, in order to connect, in order to create value, in order to create, you know, ideate, in order to invent, in order to do anything, none of it is immaculate conception. It's all derivative of input. And you not only have to consume it, but you have to let it change you. Right. And you have to be open. Right. Exactly. You have to be open to like the processing back to open source. You have to be open to modification of beliefs, principles, hypotheses. And, and so I just, I, I, again, the name of the book, Beth? I am a strange loop. I am a strange loop. By Douglas Hofstadter. So for the audience, I've gotten a lot of wonderful feedback over the last month of doing the show. And one of the bits of feedback is we would like the, particularly the interviews, but even my solo talks, could you be more prescriptive in terms of what can we do? So we love what you're saying. We love what your guests are saying. It's really interesting. It's motivating. But we can you help us with sort of a, a simplified to-do list out of, out of the talks? And so I would say to the audience, uh, I, I'll give you two to-dos, and Beth may add her own as well. We should all read this book, all of us, including me. And then the second thing I would do, if, you, if you're interested, care about the poverty situation, not just in in America, it's a, it's a global epidemic to go with our pandemic, check out Empath. It's an organization that is, is, is combining a big heart with, a, with, with big brains and a methodology that is actually having a material impact on hundreds and hundreds and arguably thousands of lives. Any other to-dos for the audience, Beth? Oh, I think I better leave it at that. We'll water it down if I add more. <laughs> there you go. Well, listen, I love you tons. And thank you so much for, for being you. I mean, for the work that you are doing to help, as I said, hundreds and thousands of people. And for just, you know, for being a, a good human being. Thank you very much, Chris. Thankful that you're in my life. Back to showing appreciation. Yeah. Love you right back. Love you back. Love you too. And uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. It's been fun. Thanks for listening today. If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons that are weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.